Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series on the book of Romans. In this sermon, God's wrath is shown to be his holy hatred of sin and his holy anger for the sinner who blasphemes him. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Wrath Revealed. Romans chapter 1, new section, exciting, new section, beginning in verse 18. We're going to read down through verse 23, but we will not make it through all of that. But this is the unit, this is the section. So chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We'll stop there. Please bow with me, and I need to ask God's help one more time. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, um, Father, thank you for all of the worship that has taken place this morning. all this, the Sunday school, the teaching of your word, the fellowship, the giving, the praying, the, the, the reading of your word publicly. God, thank you for all of this. But Father, now as we enter what is, what is the highlight of our time together of in-depth studying your word and going to drink up every drop that we can, every drop that we're able to grab onto. Father, we pray bless this very sacred time. I ask God that you protect our service. I ask God that you protect our minds from distraction. Every single week there's hundreds of things that our minds are being pulled away to think about and robbing us of attention to you, you who are the greatest treasure. But Father, this morning I I, I pray, as we look at your word, please give us a, a great ability to think deeply, to hold on to thoughts, to see your truths, and that in seeing your truths, we come to know you. Show us, oh God, who you are. Show us, oh God, your character. Show us your kindness. But God, I I pray, show us your wrath. Show us your justice. Show us your righteousness. And in doing that, bring us to fear you in your holiness to come to love you and worship you, oh God. Uh, Father, I need a thousand graces um, to preach and not mess this up. So I just pray every way that I need help, help me to do this, God. And and all of us who are gathered, help us, God, to receive your word, heed it, love it, embrace it, and be grown by it. Please convert the lost and please pierce and strengthen your people. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Imagine for a moment you're walking down the street And as you're walking, you come across the house of a neighbor that you kind of know. And and you look over towards the house and in one of the windows, you see what you you think are flames. 
So you, you run over to the house. And as you get closer and you see in there, you see that fire is breaking out in the lower level of the house. You, you look in, you're looking for people and you see that fire is spreading to every room and it's made its way to the stairwell leading to the upstairs. So in kind of a panic, you jump your way back and you look up into the upstairs window and you see the man of the house. He's there and he's oblivious. He's got his earbuds in playing a game on his phone. He has no idea what's going on. So you're thinking at this moment, all right, what, 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 what do I do here? I got, I got to do something. So you start by, you run to the back of the house. You find a ladder in the shed. You set it up outside of a window. And then you think, I'll send him a text. He's on his phone. I'm not saying it's the smartest thing, but come along in my story here, okay? You decide to send a text. And in the text, you say, there's a way of escape out the window Look for the ladder that I set up. So you see him, he feels the phone buzz, he picks it up and he sees it and he's completely confused. Way of escape, a ladder. And the reason he's confused is he still is oblivious to the fact that he is in any danger. He has no idea that there is fire below him and so he sees your name and thinks you're crazy. And the connection here to the gospel is pretty obvious, friends. Before any soul will ever embrace Jesus Christ, before any soul will, will ever run to Christ to receive this salvation that God offers, there first has to be an understanding of the danger. There first has to be a comprehension that sin has set the house on fire that there are consequences that are to come if there is not a, a running out to this. Listen to me, Christian, we could talk for years and could talk long about the many benefits of being a Christian. We could talk about the peace that comes whenever we pray and offer up our burdens to God. We could talk about the sweetness of the fellowship of the church family. We could talk about uh, having security, having fellowship with God. We could talk about all these kinds of benefits and they're all true. But nobody is going to run to Christ simply because of some of the nice benefits. They may think to themselves, well, I'm glad that makes them happy, but I've got some other things that make me happy and give me peace and security. The message of sin and the wrath of God is an absolutely necessary component of the gospel. Friends, half of the gospel is not good news. Either half. If, if someone only heard the message of sin and judgment and wrath and they never heard about the grace of God, that's not good news to them. And consequently, likewise, if someone only heard about the grace, the love and the mercy of God, but did not hear about sin, wrath and the judgment, did not hear about their need, then that's also not good news. The message of the gospel encompasses both of these and there is a great need for us to comprehend our sin and the wrath of God that is the response to that sin. An understanding of sin and God's judgment and wrath. Well, first of all, friends, it's this sort of understanding this world. Does that make sense? Like we just don't understand reality if we think that all is well. We don't understand human nature if we don't understand sin nature. 
We don't understand who God is. We don't understand what's going on in this world and what the great storyline of the world is. We don't understand what the great message, what the great point of life is. And we will waste our lives if we think that everything's fine, all is well, and don't comprehend the anger of God against our sin. So we're just always going to live in like this fairy tale version of, of a make-believe reality if we don't comprehend what is really going on with this world. And Christian, you who have trusted Christ, you who have run to Christ, you've embraced him by faith, been forgiven of your sins, and you have assurance of eternal life to come. You and I had to have some understanding of sin and of the wrath of God to come in order to repent and trust in Christ. But the more that we come to increase in the understanding of the awfulness of sin, of just how vile, just how foul it is, just what an insult it is to God, the more that we come to understand the severity of the punishment that you and I deserve and what was coming to us before we embraced Christ and received salvation. What was coming to us? The more we come to understand that, the more you are going to come, well, to understand a lot of things, but then this very critical thing, the more you will come to rejoice, the more you will come to love God, the more you will come for your soul to exult and to glory in what God has done for you. If we live in a place where we think of sin as light, like the world does, no big deal, then we will think of forgiveness as no big deal. But what the Bible does is bring us to understand what sin really is. How awful, how dirty, how nasty, how disgusting, how vile, how dark it really is. And it will bring us to rejoice in our salvation. Jesus once forgave a woman who had lived in, 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 in an awful kind of wretched existence, despicable kinds of sin, kind of the embarrassing kinds of sins. The woman came in to a room, realize, realizing who Jesus is, realizing her need of forgiveness, her need of salvation, feeling the weight of her sin. She came in. Do you remember this account where she threw herself on the ground at Jesus' feet? She washed Jesus' feet using her hair as the rag, anointed Jesus with very costly perfume and just wept wept in contrition, wept in brokenness over her sin. And Jesus responded by saying, your faith has saved you. But at that moment, there was a Pharisee looking on and he looked at that woman with just disgust, judgmental disgust. And so Jesus told a parable. He said there were two men who were in debt. One owed 500 denarii. That was, uh, a denarii was a, a working man's day's wages. So 500 denarii, that's a lot of money. 500 days of working, it's a lot of money. Another man owed 50 denarii, so 10 times less. Both of them were unable to pay their debt, but the debtor did something gracious and he forgave both of them. Jesus then asked the Pharisee this question, which of them will love him more? And the answer is the one who was forgiven more. Christian, we have been forgiven of a debt that is incomprehensibly big. We have been forgiven of a debt that the justice that was coming to us 
was eternity in hell. And you need to spend some time thinking about the awfulness of eon after eon spent enduring the flames of the wrath of God. We have been delivered out of this. We have been delivered out of a death so costly that the son of God had to go to a cross, be tortured, laid open, hung from a cross to suffer, to die for our sins. We have been saved out of this. The more you and I come to comprehend how big the debt we've been delivered out of, the wretchedness of our sin, the more we will love our God. You wanna, you wanna grow in your depth of loving Christ? Grow in your knowledge of sin. Grow in your understanding of the wrath of God. A superficial understanding of sin leads to a superficial love for God. A superficial diagnosis of the problem leads to a superficial suggestion for the cure. So Christian and non-Christian, we need the truths we're about to begin investigating and just telling you quite frankly, going to take us some time to work through. Chapter 1, verse 18 begins a section that is going to carry us through chapter 3, verse 20. So let me, let me spend just a little bit here, just, just two, three minutes, something like that. Just kind of show you a little bit of an outline of what is about to come uh, over these next couple chapters. You can kind of flip around and see what's, what's going to take place here. Chapter 1, verse 18, there's a statement that's made about the wrath of God being revealed. And what happens in the rest of chapter one, uh, uh, running through the end of the chapter there is God is going to give an overview, a summary of the sinfulness of the Gentile world, a sinfulness of the nations or those who have rejected the one true God and have turned to false idols or rejected God in general. So kind of paganism. Then starting in chapter two, verse one, and running through that whole chapter and even a little bit into chapter three, God is going to expose the sinfulness in the hearts of Israelites. Or this also applies very much to American culture. A people who have grown up understanding who the one true God is, but have not repented and embraced Christ. Maybe even those who live in self-righteousness, judging others, Chapter two is going to expose the sinfulness of that heart. Then in chapter three, verses nine through 20, flip, flip there for a second, just to kind of see what happens there. Nine through 20, there's a section where there's kind of a great uh, bringing together of all of it. Jews and non-Jews, religious and non-religious, regardless of your background, regardless of your worldviews, thoughts, sin, lifestyle, whatever. This summarizes all of us. Let me point you to just one verse in that. Verse 10 of chapter three, look what it says. As it is written, quote from the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. You are never gonna understand the gospel until you understand that truth. You are never gonna understand why Jesus came to die until you agree with that truth. And another thing to notice, a great many of the liberal churches who have rejected the gospel and do not even believe that scripture is the word of God and are teaching false gospels have abandoned it in large part because of refusing to agree with God on this point right here. And they've come to the conclusion, humans can't be all that bad. In fact, I, th I think we're pretty great. 
And then therefore a false gospel comes out of it because once you knock this out, the whole rest of the gospel dismantles right there. If you believe we don't need saving, the whole message of the gospel is the message of what God has done to save souls from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation, and all souls need him. So that's the storyline of the first few chapters there of what's going to take place. The wrath of God is revealed. Why? Because of the sinfulness of humanity, and we have all participated in it. Now flip back to chapter 1, if you will. And now that we've done kind of a larger overview, let's zoom in a little tighter on just chapter 1. And let me show you what's happening here. Um, In verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. And if someone were to ask, why? You know, why, why is God doing that? Well, we've already answered that somewhat. We could say, well, because of sin. But what chapter 1 and chapter 2 does is it brings us a little bit more to help us see and feel why sin is such an affront to God. Why is sin so vile? Why is it so insulting to God? And so verse 19 begins with, okay, the wrath of God is revealed because, because And then there are five verses after that that give an overview of the affront against God that the nations have participated in. Do you see that? Okay, they know God is there, but they will not acknowledge him as God. They refuse to worship him, okay? So five verses of, here's the summary of how the nations have wronged God. Then look at verse 24. Look what's happening here. There's the therefore. There's actually a series of three therefores. There are three acts of judgment that are described. So the nations have rebelled against God. The nations have refused to worship God. Therefore, three acts of judgment. Now, before you read them, or pretend you've never read them before, if I were to ask you, what do you think they are? I'm just telling you right now, they're not what I would guess. It says that God has begun to pour out his wrath because we're not talking about the final wrath yet. That'll come in chapter two. What it is saying is God has already begun to pour out his wrath. There are some acts of judgment that God has already begun to show. And here's three. Here are three of them. If you were, if you were to ask me, what do you think they were before I never, I wouldn't guess these. Because look and see what it is there. What it are is this. The judgment that God has already unleashed and is continuing to is the removing of some of his graces that keep men from falling into great wickedness. God gives them over. He lets them have what they want. So just so you're tracking with me here, God lets mankind fall into deeper, wretched sin as a judgment for sin. So we're going to elaborate on all that a little bit more as we go, especially when we get to those verses. But for now, I just kind of wanted to see how it's fitting together. What's being set up here? Do you you also see, we talked about this last week, there is a very sophisticated set of arguments being set up here. And that's what's going to transpire. The wrath of God is revealed because, and then here are acts of judgment. This is going to carry us through in a very intelligent uh, uh, reasoning that is set up here. All right. So looking at verse 18 specifically, I've got it divided into three parts. We're only going to cover two today because the last one that's talked about is kind of a big one and carries us into like the next several verses. So we're going to look at the third one next week. Here is 
Number one, if you're taking notes, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's exactly out of the text, but each one of those little statements, each one of those little phrases means something. All right, so let's begin to, let's begin to investigate the text here. The verse starts with the word for. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And that word is critical. That's connecting you to the previous couple of verses that we just looked at, okay? The gospel is great news. The gospel is the power of God. Why is it good news? Before you understand the good news, you have to comprehend the bad news. You have to understand the condition. There's something we need to be saved from. So what do we need to be saved from? The wrath of God. Of God. Never miss this about the gospel, friends. God made a way to save you from his wrath. The gospel is not about God saving you from Satan's wrath or Satan's clutches. Ultimately, what we need delivered, what we need rescued from is the wrath that comes from God. You know, in every other story in all the movies, when there's somebody who gets rescued, you know, how how does the story go? The story is there's a good man, a good woman, and they're in the clutches of a bad man. And they're, the good man is saved from the bad man. That's not the story of the gospel, friends. The story of the gospel is you're the bad man. You're the bad man. The righteous and holy God is going to deal with the bad men, the bad women. The righteous God is going to exercise his judgment in a, in a good way, but in mercy. The holy God has made a way for bad men to be transformed, to be brought into righteousness, to be forgiven. But even as we say it like that, you can start to see why the world hates the gospel. The gospel is declaring you're bad. You're not okay. You're not right with God until you have salvation in Christ. The gospel is about God saving you from his justice that we rightly owe. All right, so we use this word wrath. Let's ask the question. Let's try to define it. What is is this wrath? If you're wanting a definition, here's a helpful one to write down. God's wrath is his holy hatred of sin and his holy disgust with the sinner. So it is God's anger towards sin and his anger with the one doing the sin. I know we have that little phrase, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. It's not in the Bible. It's just sometimes used. There are some ways that that phrase can be helpful, but, you know, understand it can also be misunderstood there. Uh, When we are forgiving others, that might be a helpful kind of thing. Hate with with the deeds that have been done, but have a love for the person. This is, these are some ways that God sees the Christian, the one who has um, received forgiveness of sins. God has a love for us, but still disgusted with our sin and such. But do not misunderstand to think that somehow God is going to make that kind of distinction with those who reject him on the day of judgment. It's not going to be the case that on the day of judgment, all these souls are before him and God's going to say, well, I didn't like what you did, but I won't punish you as if they're separate. As much as the world wants to argue with this and it constantly has this message that is saying otherwise, what you do 
is a reflection of who you are. Now, the world's always arguing that, right? I, I am not my deeds. The world is always arguing things like, well, I may have done these bad things, but that's not me. I have a heart of gold. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the actions that we do are the fruit that comes out of the tree. What kind of tree are you? Well, examine the fruit. Cut open the apple. What kind of tree is it? What we do is a reflection of who we are. So God's wrath is his holy hatred of sin and his holy anger for the sinner who is blaspheming him. So God's wrath is his anger, but anger is not strong enough of a word. Anger does not yet encapsulate what it means. But this word that's used here, wrath, I don't know what you picture when you hear the word wrath, but let me, let me help you at least understand what, what the original word here. It is a word that describes controlled, reasonable, and righteous wrath. Righteous anger, okay? So this is not, we have some other words in English that refer to like fly off the handle, rage, fury. And don't misunderstand, sometimes God will speak of his anger towards sin and put the words wrath and fury together. But we have to understand God's controlled, patient, and reasonableness to his wrath. God is angry with sin, but he's not a wild man running into a room, wild-eyed, just smacking stuff. You understand what I'm saying? Okay? That's not God's wrath. Now, there are times where God will use some metaphors to help us understand. So, for instance, the metaphor is used of God's fury that like a bear robbed of her cubs so God will deal with the wicked. If you've ever seen footage of that, that is a terrifying picture of God breaking forth. That's, that's Old Testament language, breaking forth against evil. So wrath and fury together. But we do have to understand that God's wrath in this word that is used, it is a patient and calculated anger towards sin. He never goes too far. He never loses his temper in such a way that, that he does what he should not have done. God never rushes into something like that. He is patient. Chapter 2 is going to tell us that God is storing up his wrath. To help us give a picture from it, let, let's think of a biblical account. Um, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. If it's been a little while since you've read that section of scripture, it's in Genesis, uh, the end of chapter 18, the beginning of chapter 19. And by the way, you need to read both. The end of chapter 18 is where we have that account where God has a conversation with Abraham. Do you remember this? And God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy the city of Sodom. Abraham asks God the question, what happens if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you still destroy them? God says, no. Abraham asks, well, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And God says, if there are even 10 righteous people in the city, I will not destroy. The reason why that's important is the account of Sodom and Gomorrah is different than a lot of times the way people think about it. A lot of times when people hear Sodom and Gomorrah, they think, Fire and brimstone, and there is that. But they think of God like he rushed into Sodom and just went nuts. You know, just not even thinking, just smacking stuff around in fury, wild-eyed. That's, that's not it. Listen, the, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah is actually a demonstration of God's patience. 
patience, God's grace. There is mercy in that account. God sent angels to go evaluate the situation. God didn't need them to evaluate, but how else would we know? God sends angels in to evaluate the situation. The angels come to deliver God's people. Those who were trusting him out, they come to Lot and his family. There's an extension of grace to others in the city. The message of God's coming wrath and the way to escape from it is given to others. They don't believe. And then also, I'm amazed at just how detailed some of these things are. Do you remember also the account of the men in the city were wanting to rape the angels who had come and God struck them with blindness? Struck them with blindness as an act of judgment before the final judgment. Are you seeing the connections here? Like this is just like exact, this was meant to be given to us as a metaphor of the gospel to help us understand. God struck these men with a blindness ahead of time before the final judgment. When they were struck with blindness, shouldn't that have been like a wake up call to be like, hey dummy, something's going on here. Maybe I ought to stop this. But in their lust, they just continue to feed their lust and make their way all the way to the final judgment. But listen, when God had saved his people, when the moment was right, then he unleashed the fury of his wrath. And so notice that just because God's wrath is calculated, it doesn't mean it's small. Just because God is patient, doesn't mean it's never going to happen. Just because God is careful and exact doesn't mean it's not something to be terrified of. God is calculated. God is righteous. But when the moment comes that he chooses that it is time, the fury that breaks out is something that is terrifying. God's wrath being held back right now doesn't mean he doesn't care. And then notice that this is God's wrath revealed from heaven. One of the things that the text is going to go on to show is some of the ways that these early judgments, these uh, portions of God's wrath come onto the world and it is in a way that does kind of look like um, natural consequences. For instance, one of the things that's going to be brought up is STDs in this chapter. That sounds like a natural kind of consequence, but one of the things we're being told is God from heaven is actively at work in these things. Temporary early judgment is being demonstrated. But then let's start to ask this this logical question as well. we've, We've lightly addressed it, but I want to elaborate on a little bit more. How is God's wrath being revealed? We might say, how, what is God doing that it is being dished out? The text is saying that from heaven, God is right now pouring out wrath. We know there is the wrath to come, the day of judgment. And chapter two is going to briefly deal with that. But this chapter is beginning to say that even right now. So what are they? Well, part of what scripture shows is that there is an emphasis on the right now. Look at one passage with me, if you will. John chapter 3. John 3. 
Uh, look at verse 16, because it kind of helps set up the context that there. You'd know it. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now jump to the last verse of the chapter, verse 36, John 3, 36. He who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you hear that language? God's wrath abides on the person. That word abide is important in the book of John. It's one of the themes that comes up. One of the things that John will teach is that the person who has embraced Christ, repented of sins and trusted Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, come and make their abode, abide in the soul that has trusted in Christ. But here, for the one who rejects God, what are we told? Abides on him and in him. It's not the presence of God's grace, but it is the presence of God's wrath. Even now, God's wrath is being given to the wicked, even now, and God is displaying it. God is doing it in such a way that if people are paying attention, like if we get quiet and honest, how often does that happen? Okay, for the Christian, it should happen a lot, but what is Satan's work all the time? Try to keep everybody busy, keep everybody on their phones so that nobody thinks, nobody gets quiet. If we're quiet and honest, we will see these things. Even pagan philosophers from history looked at this world and came to the conclusion, the God must be angry. That's how Socrates would speak. The God must be angry if we see these kinds of things in the world. So how is God's wrath being unleashed? The number of ways, here's one summary way of saying it. Every single detail of this world that is not joyful and perfect is an expression of the wrath of God. Stubbing your pinky toe is an expression of the wrath of God. But so is a hurricane shredding a city. Romans 8 will say that creation is groaning. It is suffering the pains of childbirth. Every lightning strike, every tornado, every flood, every drought, every famine, every animal attack, miscarriage, cancer cell, depression, anxiety, and harm that humans do to one another, etc., 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 is a result of the curse. And it is an active demonstration of the fact that the God who rules this cosmos is not happy. He is angry. So the next time somebody asks if a hurricane is the wrath of God, the answer is yes. But here's what we got to be careful of. What we cannot say definitively is that God sent that hurricane or whatever against that city because he's more angry with that city than another city. Maybe, maybe not. Scripture shows both happens. Scripture shows that there are times where individuals on the earth or cities on the earth, or nations on the earth become so exceedingly wicked that God does visit a earthly judgment on them. But scripture also shows times where those who love God and live to honor him suffer greatly. And sometimes the wicked, oftentimes the wicked, grow rich and fat. Friends, God is working all of these things in such a way that in the end, we will be amazed. 
We will worship him for the plan that worked out to perfection. But along the way, not every account gets settled now. The ultimate day of settling of counts is yet in the future. God is working all of this, but here is what the text is showing. God is working in such a way and he is pouring out certain earthly judgments that if we're paying attention, we will see these things. The God who rules the skies must not be happy if he is sending this kind of devastation. The existence of cancer is a demonstration of the wrath of God. Not necessarily on the person who gets it. A Christian who honors God might get cancer at a young age. That doesn't mean that God's more angry at that person than another person, but the existence of it in this world is a demonstration of the wrath of God. This world is under a curse. God is angry. And so we've answered that question partially. How is his wrath displayed? Pain and difficulty and chaos on the earth is a demonstration of his wrath. Chapter 2, we'll talk about the final wrath, but here's the chief way that chapter 1 is showing it. These three therefores. Jump jump to them with me. Verse uh, 24 of chapter 1. Therefore, so after looking at this sin, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26. For this reason, that's kind of like saying therefore, God gave them over to degrading passions. And then it goes on to explain what those degrading passions are. Examples of them. Jump down to verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Okay, you heard that repetition of the phrase, God gave them over. Friends, this is a critical demonstration of the wrath of God. It is the deepening of human depravity, the degradation of human dignity, the disgustingness of human actions, stupidity of thought, stupidity of conduct. Friends, it's basically every way that the angels look in and go, how disgusting, how vile. I mean, they were made to be high. They were made to be great. They were made with glory. They were made higher than us. And yet, look at them. A whole bunch of them are destroying themselves with nasty stuff. Look at them. A whole bunch of them, they're killing their unborn. Like, you got to be stupid. They're killing their unborn. And over here, look at this group who's marching in the streets in support of the killing of the unborn. And then look at this group over here. The rich suburbanites caring more about their money and what's coming on TV that night than the fact that the unborn are being killed. Look at this. This is a travesty. It's everywhere the angels look at that and see this. It's everywhere that God looks down from heaven and sees, listen to me, not just sin, but stupidity. The things that we do to ourselves that degrade us, that bring misery on ourselves. There are actions we take that invite misery to us. How can we be that stupid? It is part of the giving over. It is part of 
the judgment that we fall into these things. And listen to me, friends, we will see it on the day of judgment. The Christian who has come to be awakened, the Christian who has come to see for the first time, we begin to start to get a sense for how gross and degrading and and unintelligent some of these things are. And the more we grow, the more we see it. But we do get frustrated that sometimes we'll be talking to somebody in the face and they're ruining their lives, they're bringing misery, and they don't see it. Listen to me, on the day of judgment, we will all see it. And we will all see it with clarity. What Romans 3.20 will say is, every mouth will be shut. No excuses. No arguing with God. None of the justifications and all this, but, 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 none of that. We will see, we will know, our own hearts will condemn us. Our own hearts will cry out within us, our conscience testifying and saying, you know you're guilty and you knew then. You knew when you were on the earth, you just didn't want to see it. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven. In judgment, he gives Mankind over to their lust. Now, before we leave this point, there's one, one last just little sub-point I want to make. And it is an important one, especially if we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about God's wrath. Wrath is not the only expression of God to this world. While God is displaying his wrath, listen, friends, he is also displaying his kindness. Never forget that. God warns in his wrath and he woos with his kindness. That's not original to me. I'm not that smart. Um, Look at chapter two, verse four, though, for a second, and, and look at the way that this is worded. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Jesus said that God the Father causes his sun to shine and his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. You can look at this world and you can discern that the God who rules this earth, he is a God of beauty. How many of you saw that sunset this morning? Man, the God who rules the skies, he is a God of glory. He is a God of beauty. He is a God of kindness. You can discern that. Even if you didn't have a Bible, you can discern the God who rules the skies. He's beautiful, glorious, he's kind and angry. He's kind and angry. You don't have to have a Bible to see those things. That's part of what chapter one is going to go on to say, that even the nations who don't have scriptures, sermons are all around us. God has put sermons and his truth in the cosmos. We can discern that he is kind and angry. And if you think about it, it doesn't take a lot of deep thinking to put those two together and to come to a conclusion. The God who rules is kind and angry. There's hope in that. He's angry, so there's a problem. But he is merciful. He is loving. And if he is kind and merciful and loving, then there must be a way that I can be made right with him. What is that way? Oh God, show me the way. And you know what scripture says? Every soul on this planet who follows the light that they have been given It doesn't just then say, everything's okay. No, what it says is, God will show more. 
You will find me when you seek for me and search for me with all of your heart. Even in the cosmos, God has put the knowledge of himself and his wrath is part of the way that God is revealing himself. All right, let's move on to the second part then and this will be much briefer. Number two, wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, here's how I've worded number two, against breaking the first table. I'll explain what that means here in just a second. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Think about those two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Words are awesome. Let's talk about words for a second here. This word for ungodliness is a word that very literally refers to irreverence to God. So similar to the word unrighteous, let's think about it in English. The word unrighteous has a root word, righteous. And then we've got an English prefix that we put in front of it, un. And that makes it the opposite. Something is fair, put the un in front of it and it becomes unfair. We understand what that means. Greek has something similar. In Greek, if you put the letter alpha in front of a word, it's kind of like our English un. It makes it the opposite of what it is. So what is the root word here that is being referred to? Well, it's a word that in other places in scripture is translated as worship or sometimes religious or devout. So like in Acts 6, when we're told that Lydia was a worshiper of God, this root word is used, sabea. And so if we put the un in front of this word, worship, this is not an English word, unworshipfulness is kind of the literal idea that is here with this word. Now, sometimes in just like in English, words don't mean what the literal rendering means. And so there are some places in the New Testament where it's not specifically referring to irreverence, but just kind of another word for wickedness, what's bad. So which way is it being used here? Well, I am convinced that the word is used in its most literal way. And part of the reason I believe that is, if you look at the whole passage, it's the way the passage is laid out. There is an emphasis put first on the ways that humanity have wronged God vertically and that has then resulted in the wronging of one another horizontally. There is, there is a way that this is shown. So verse 19 to 20 is all about how the nations, listen to me, not how they have wronged one another, but how they have insulted God by refusing to worship him. Do you see it? Look in the text. Verses 19 and 20. Everybody knows God is there. Everybody knows that he's glorious. Everybody knows that he is to be worshiped. Verse 21, but they have rejected him. They have refused to honor him. They won't give thanks. They won't worship him. And instead, they have created their own gods. Therefore, then we come into those acts of judgment. Therefore, God gave them over to this stupidity, this degrading of themselves, and they began to sin against one another. They harmed each other after first rebelling against God. So here's, here's part of the point, friends. The very first way that we sin and deserve wrath is in failure to our obligations towards God. The very first way that we sin is vertically. 
It's by robbing God of love and glory that he is due, that we owe to him. And I don't have to tell you, the world thinks that is crazy. Like all the time there's argument with this. They just think that is the dumbest statement ever. And sometimes they'll argue and they'll say some things like this. So you're telling me that the sin of not going to church is worse than rape? And I don't believe that's what the text is saying here. I don't believe the text is putting weight to one kind of sin or another, but rather priority. The obligation that you have to God is higher than the obligation you have to anyone else. There are things that you owe God. And the world is constantly arguing that. Constantly the world speaks of morality only as, what do they always say? Well, I ain't hurting anybody. Not hurting anybody, therefore I'm a good person. Well, you're wrong on a whole lot of levels. You are harming others. You are sinning horizontally. As you read down through this list of the kinds of horizontal sins, everybody's participating in them. Envy, greed, coveting, failing to love, failing to care for. And then everybody always forgets the part that is brought up in Romans 1 about the ways that we influence each other. We are harming each other, but that's not even the biggest point. The biggest point is that in the same way, if you applied the way that people want to treat God, if you applied it to marriage, it would seem so crazy. And this is the illustration that we most often use. If I treated my wife like oftentimes people speak of the way that it's okay to treat God, everybody knows that's not okay. I have a duty towards her. I have obligations. There are things that I owe her. I want to do it as well, but I need to see that there is an obligation that is there. Every person, every soul, you have things that you owe God. You owe him love and honor and gratitude and worship. And do we not see this kind of priority all through the scriptures? In the Ten Commandments, this has been seen for thousands of years, that there is a priority put on the fact that our obligations towards God are what are listed first. Sometimes that's referred to as the first table of the Ten Commandments. Now, different ways of seeing this, but here's what I believe. In the Ten Commandments, I believe we're told that Moses had two tablets. I believe one tablet was the tablet that referred to the vertical commandments. And the other tablet is what referred to the horizontal commandments, a priority given first. The first four commandments are the commandments that pertain to how we worship and honor and love God. That's the vertical. And then the horizontal. And Jesus said that there are two commandments that would sum up all of it, all of the law, all the prophets, all the Ten Commandments, and both tablets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look, chapter 1, that's how this passage is laid out. The first way that the nations have rebelled against God is by failing to worship, rejecting Him. And then He says, as a result of the rejecting, judgment has come. A giving over to these things, failing to worship, Failing to worship rightly is a way that we rob God. Friends, think about how God has designed our week. The first day of the week, 
a place of priority in this fullness of times. God has made the Lord's day, the day of worship and rest. Think of all the ways that giving is spoken of in scripture. The first fruits, the very first thing we do with money that comes in is devoted unto the Lord in an act of worship again and again and again. There is this priority put on honoring God above all things. That is why there is a big deal about the church gathering together and things like skipping out of worship and such. I know sometimes we talk about that and folks would be like, oh, that's, that's legalism. You know, we can't talk about duty, obligation. How can we not see this as priority? We are called to honor God as the first way that we obey our highest obligation. So let me kind of bring this to help understanding where we are with God. Every single one of us in this room, you and I, we've wronged others. We've harmed others. We've sinned in a way that's horizontal. But do you also see that you have wronged God? You and I, we have robbed him of worship. We have failed to love him as he is worth. We have failed to give him what is his due. You and I have insulted the living God, and whether you agree with it or not, well, let me say it like this, whether you like it or not, he tells us that there is wrath that is coming for rebelling against and refusing to worship him. But the gospel is about a way that God has made to save us from his wrath. The Lord Jesus has come and took the wrath in our place so that when we embrace him, repenting of our sins, trusting in Christ, we receive forgiveness, are counted as right, and we are brought into fellowship with God, brought into the family of God, and made right with Him. You and I have a lot of needs. There is no need greater than your need to be at peace with the God who rules this cosmos, and that way is made available to you in Christ. And if you want to do that today, you can pray where you are right now, call out to God, ask him to save you. If you want somebody to talk to, I'll be at the back after the service. Just come ask me to talk. Nothing I'd rather do. Let me close this in prayer and we'll dismiss. Oh, sovereign God, we have thousands and thousands of individual moments of sin that we need to confess. But God, we want to collectively right now confess the fact that we have worshipped idols. We have loved creation more than you. We have taken your name in vain. We have not revered you to the highest place that you're worthy of. We have created things in our lives and, and given them places of allegiance higher than you. We have failed to worship you. We've not loved you. God, we ask, forgive us. And God, grow us. As a church family, grow us to love you as your worth. God, I pray for any in the room this morning that has never trusted you, never come to you like this, never called out to be saved, never understood their need to. God, I pray that this morning you will draw them to yourself. Lord, you will hound them and help them to understand their guilt and their need that sin has set their house on fire and I pray that they will run to you to be saved. Please, oh God, accomplish this. 
Please bless the rest of our day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Wrath Revealed. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.